you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 through 32, or sorry, uh, verses 10 through 32 is what we will be looking at. Um, the sermon was just about to be cut in half there, but Genesis 11, uh, 10 through 32 is the text that we'll be looking at. It's, it's on page 8 if you have the Bibles uh, from the church, the Black Pew Bibles. Um, if it would make sense in the place that you're at to stand for the reading of Scripture, I would invite you to do that. For those of you who are in this room, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's read this text together, and then we will pray, and then we will hear the sermon. This is a genealogy, and this is a family move. Let me read to us Genesis 11:10 through 32. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after, after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg, and Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru, and Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug, and Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor, and Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah, and Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. You may be seated as we pray together. Oh, Father, we come to you. We are sinful, finite, broken, and weak people. But you are strong and righteous, mighty to save, able to help, and so we ask for your help this morning. Would you illumine our minds and our hearts so that we can receive your word in faith? Would you help us to truly believe and receive this word as your word and help us to order our lives accordingly for your name's sake? Father, please help me as the preacher to communicate these things with clarity, and with faithfulness, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, 
It's about eight years ago now that I decided to propose to my wife, Alyssa. And, uh, you know, the proposal took place in the States, but I bought the ring in Canada just because how the, the calendar worked. And, and so we would go ring shopping together, Alyssa and I. And we'd go into these ring stores, into these jewelers, and, and, you know, she would try on rings. And, you know, I'm noting a few things. I'm obviously noting the kinds of things that she likes, and I'm also noting the size of ring when they size her up. And one of the practices, the standard practices that happens when you go ring shopping is that the salesperson will bring out a black cloth. Now, if you've gone ring shopping, you know exactly what that black cloth is for. But in case you didn't, the bla that black cloth they bring out so that the ring can be placed on the black cloth in order to bring out the brilliance of the ring itself, and particularly of the diamond. In other words, the ring shines brighter and the diamond uh, is more brilliant against the backdrop of the black cloth. So you can imagine a ring or a diamond that's placed on a glass countertop that's all scratched up. The, the, the ring is not going to shine forth as brightly. The darkness causes the diamond to shine brighter. And that's a little bit like what's happening in our text this morning. You see, at this point in Genesis, things are not looking good. And if you have been with us in this series of Genesis, there are some high points, but there are also very low points as well. And as we arrive at our passage, things really are not looking so great. So let me just provide a brief recap of these chapters. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the universe is created, and humanity is made, and all is good. All are dwelling in and exist in harmony, and it's good. But very quickly after that, in Genesis chapter 3, humanity rebels against their creator and invites the judgment and the curse of God upon themselves and upon the world. In Genesis chapter 6, then, we are told of Noah and of the flood account and of how God brings about cataclysmic worldwide judgment upon the earth because every intention of man and woman is evil even from their youth. In Genesis chapter 9, humanity is given a new and fresh start, but they ruin that as well. And so in Genesis chapter 11, in the Tower of Babel, which we heard last week from Pastor James, humanity decides to put their resources together, to pool their talents and their skills and everything that they've got together in order to erect this tower in rebellion against God. And as a result, humanity is divided and scattered across the face of the planet in the nations of the world. That's where we're at um, in the Genesis account, we could say in a sentence that the world and humanity with it finds itself under a divine curse and not under divine blessing. So, interestingly, it is at this point that God chooses to work in a unique way. It is at this point that God zeroes in his focus upon one man and his family and begins to work in a powerful and new way. And friends, this morning, brothers and sisters, I would like to introduce you to this man and to his family. Let me introduce you to Abram, more commonly known as Abraham. And we're going to look at this text under two headings, two points, two movements, if you're taking notes this morning, the family line and the family move. The family line is found in verses 10 through 26, 
And the family move is found in 27 through 32. Now, the passage begins by providing us with this family tree, a list of names, and the technical word for that is a genealogy. Now, again, if you have been with us throughout this series in the book of Genesis, or if you have just read Genesis yourself, then you know that Genesis contains many genealogies, many of these lists of names, many of these family trees in its pages, okay? And two of the most significant genealogies in the book of Genesis is Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 11. And the reason why these two genealogies are particularly important is because they trace for us the seed line, uh, the seed line through which the blessing to the world would come. I'll get back to that in just a moment. So I just want to compare and contrast these two genealogies. Again, the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5 and the genealogy in Genesis chapter 11, because I think it gives us some insights into what is happening in our text. First, let me just pull out a few similarities. Both genealogies contain 10 names, okay? You, have to, you kind of have to add Noah to the top of Genesis 11, but either way, both genealogies contain 10 names. Both begin with a significant figure in the Bible storyline, and both genealogies end with three sons at the very bottom. And both genealogies former, follow this similar formula of such and such lived so many years, he fathered so and so, and such and such lived this many years after he fathered so and so and other sons and daughters. You heard that formula over and over again as I read the passage, and if you look to Genesis 5, that same pattern is present there as well. In the first genealogy, the link is made from Adam to Noah, and in the second genealogy, the link is made from Noah to Abram. And this, this carries forward the, the promised line, and that's why these genealogies are important. Now, if you're a kid that's watching, and that was a little bit over your head, a little bit difficult to understand. Let me give you a little illustration to help us understand this. So I'm not sure if you've played that game where there's like a magician or a performer or something like that, and there's three cups. I'll just say that there's three cups, and then the, the person that's performing, uh, that, you know, that's, that's before he says, hey, like, I'm going to put this red ball under this cup, and you're supposed to, and, and he says, watch carefully as he rearranges the cups. And at the end of it, he says, okay, which, which, which cup is the red ball in? And if you're watching carefully enough, then you know where that red ball is. And this is what we need to do as well. We need to watch carefully. Where does this blessing come from? And who is this promised deliverer? And this is what Moses is helping us to do and to understand. And, and I'm not sure if you noticed, but in our genealogy, there are very few extra details that are given. No speech is recorded, okay? None of the characteristics of any of the men are provided, and there are no special details. It is quick, it's fast-moving, it's deliberate, it's purposeful. And I think what Moses is doing is that he's moving in that kind of staccato fashion in order to get us to Abram, the promised seed. There's a few other details in the genealogy that are important for us to note as well. And the, the, first, the first of these have to do with, with the ages of the men, Okay. Now, now, this is just a little bit of a, a, a detail in the text that I just want to draw out just for our observation and consideration. But essentially, as the genealogy goes on, I'm not sure if you noticed, is that the ages of the men when they have a child and the ages of the men when they die get, get lower and lower as the genealogy continues. Okay? And so much so that the ages of the men are pretty close to the ages that we are accustomed to in our day um, 
when we consider when men have children and when men die. Now, I understand that the numbers are, are a bit higher than what we're used to, but it gets much closer to our time than the genealogy of Genesis 5. Okay? So, basically, what we have here is that there is this transition that's taking place from primeval history to patriarchal history. There is this transition that's taking place as a result of probably the flood and probably Babel, where the environment and the, and the dynamics of human relationships are, so, are changing in such, to such a degree that the ages of the people are decreasing. Let me just mention one other thing, and that's this, that if you compare the Genesis 5 and the Genesis 11 genealogies. There's a, there's a refrain that's repeated in the Genesis 5 genealogy over and over and over and over again. And that refrain is the, refra- is the phrase, and he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. Now, very or surprisingly and importantly, that phrase is left out in Genesis 11. But that's not it, okay? That's not all. In Genesis 5, we have the genealogy, which is followed by the flood and worldwide judgment. But in Genesis chapter 11, it is followed by the promise and the blessing given to Abraham. And so what we might say of the Genesis 5 genealogy is that it is death. It is a genealogy of death that is headed towards judgment. But in Genesis chapter 11, it is a genealogy of life, which is headed towards blessing, There's a different tone that's occurring between the two genealogies, and I think that's important for us to note. So the minor details of this genealogy actually prove to be majorly significant. It tells us that God is working. He's working in history and behind the scenes deliberately and purposefully in order to bring us to the promised seed. Which means then that humanity's rebellion, a global flood, and the dispersion of the people into the nations of the world are not large enough, significant enough, powerful enough to stop God from unfolding his plan of redemption for the world. This genealogy moves us from Shem to Abram. It connects primeval history to patriarchal history. And it it links the history of the world with the history of Israel. Now, why is that important? You're like, I'm not Jewish, I'm not an Israelite, why should I care about the history of Israel? Here's the thing. The way that Genesis is written, right? Okay, in Genesis 1 through 11, it encompasses the whole world. It concerns all of us. It is universal in scope, okay? And it is in Genesis 1 through 11 that the problem that we find ourselves in is uh, explained, Okay, it is in Genesis 1 through 11 that the problem for all of us is created and explained. And what Moses is telling us is that the solution for the problem, which is for all the world, will be found in the following pages, which concerns the history of the people of Israel. It it concerns Abraham and his seed, and that is where we will be able to find the solution for you and for me, the solution for the world. God has chosen to bless the world, my friends. But God has chosen to bless the world through the seed of Abraham. That's how he has always done it from this point forward, and that's how he does it today. And so we need to look to him. So with that genealogy done, let us now move to the second point in our passage, and that is the family move. The family line and the family Move And there's a bit more movement in this section than in the genealogy. So let's just walk through this text very quickly. 
and then let's draw out some things yet again. So what we have here is that we are introduced to Terah, and he has three sons. The three sons are named Abram, Nahor, and Haran, okay? And then we are told about those three sons. Haran has Lot for a son, but then we are told that Haran actually dies prematurely in Ur of the Chaldeans, okay? Which means then that Lot is left without a father, and Terah outlives his son Haran. And then we are told about the other two sons, Abram and Nahor, okay? And we are told that Abram and Nahor took wives to themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, who happened to be his niece, the daughter of Haran, okay? So we're kind of introduced to the family. We're, we're given names and we're given details that are going to be important in the rest of the narrative of Genesis, now, before we continue in the text, let me just share with you just a brief story. I, I remember showing up one time uh, to help this family move. And we showed up sort of mid-morning, probably about 9, 10 a.m. And I remember showing up and, you know, the, the, the truck wasn't there. And, you know, we, we knock on the door, we go into the home. And, and you know, the, the kids, who would have been kind of teenagers and younger, are, are in their pajamas. They're kind of slowly making their way out of bed, which that's fine. But, but like, I don't, know, I don't know the percentage, but, you know, let's say half the house was not packed yet. The kitchen wasn't clean, the, the fridge wasn't cleared out, and, and so we spent, you know, 12 hours <laughs> helping this family move um, because they hadn't just prepared adequately for us to come and help them. Needless to say, I dislike moving. Um, in the text, Tara and his family are about to make a move as well. We are told that Sarah takes his son Abram, his grandson Lot, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and they are going to move out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, the text seems to indicate that their initial intention was to, to go to the land of Canaan. But instead, they arrive at Haran, and they settle there instead. The text ends by telling us that Terah died at the age of 100, or 205 in Haran. So, like, what are we supposed to do with this? Like, is this just some, like, sort of, is this the recounting of some family's move? Is the history of, of, of Terah and his family and their move from Ur of the Chaldeans to Haran? Is it more of like a setup text, just sort of like a, like a, like a runway at the airport to kind of take us off to Genesis chapter 12? And I think both those things are true. It is a setup text. It is a, a, the history of a family's move. But I think there's some important things for us to glean here as well. First, I want to be very candid with you, and I think it's important for me to be candid with you about really the, the, the nature or the, the background, the backstory to Abram's family. You see, the, 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 it, there's a few details in the text, and there's other texts that help us to kind of paint a picture of Abram's family. Uh, and it's important for us to understand that the city of Ur was a leading center in Babylonian culture, okay? And the city would have housed this massive ziggurat, okay, in, in Ur, and both Ur and Haran were, were major centers for lunar worship. It's important for us to note. And in fact, the names Sarah and Milcah are related to the pagan gods of moon worship. And then in Joshua, we are actually explicitly told that Abram's family, when they were beyond the river, when they were in Ur of the Chaldeans, they served other gods, and then furthermore, in verse 31, I'm not sure if you noticed, let me just turn there very briefly, verse 31, 
okay, we're told that they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there, okay? And that small phrase is important because that phrase settled there shows up in chapter 11, verse 2, where it talks about before the, the story of the Tower of Babel, the people of the earth migrated east. They found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there, okay? There's a lot of people in the Bible that you could be compared to. Let me tell you that the people at the Tower of Babel are not a people that you want to be compared to. And yet, Terah and his actions are being compared to the actions of the people at the Tower of Babel. And so there's this negative light that's being cast upon this entire section. There's a negative light that's being cast upon Terah and his decision-making. It's probably not a good thing in the mind of the author that Terah settled in Haran. This will serve as a contrast, or sorry, this, I should say, this serves as a contrast to Abram's faith, particularly as we move forward in the narrative. But what we need to understand is that Father Abraham, the father of both Jews and of Christians, the model exemplar of faith, was once a pagan idolater, along with his family. And it was out of that darkness that God called Abram to himself. So let me just say this, that God is able to shine light into the darkness, and he was able to do it then, and he is able to do it now, and so let us hope in him. God is able to shine light into the darkness. He's also able to overcome the seemingly impossible. Now, I don't know much about movies and how they work, but I do know this, that, that in good movies, there's foreshadowing that happens, Right? There's hints and clues dropped by the writer, the producer, the director, whoever, in order to show that something significant is going to happen and this clue is going to factor into that later event, right? Um, and and, and the, the, the people who are writing these things are dropping hints along the way to say, hey, watch out for this. And the writers of Scripture were master narrators. And so they also foreshadow. They also drop hints. They also drop clues, Part of the clues that are dropped in this text is they're just telling us about the main characters of the, narrative, of the Abraham narrative. Okay, so obviously we're introduced to Abraham and Sarai. We're introduced to Lot, who um, follows Abraham for a time, but then they part ways. And then we're also told about Nahor, and Nahor is significant because he is the grandfather of Rebekah, who eventually marries Isaac. So we're introduced to the main characters, and, and that's a little bit of um, foreshadowing that's happening. But, we're, but Moses also introduces us to the drama of the narrative. He introduces us to the drama. Let me explain what I mean by that. Remember how I told you that one of the concerns of the writer of Genesis is that he's wanting to trace this seed line. He's wanting to trace the, the family tree from which the promised deliverer would come, okay? And in order for that to happen, obviously, there has to be lots of childbirth. There has to be lots of begetting. There have to be lots of babies born in order for this genealogy to continue, in order for this seed line to continue into perpetuity. And so here's the thing. We move from Adam to Seth to Noah, and then we move from Noah to Shem to Terah to Abram. And we have finally arrived, my friends, at Abram. We have arrived at the one 
for whom all the world and all Israel and all Genesis has been waiting for. We have arrived at the chosen one. We have arrived at the promised one. We have arrived at the one that we have all been waiting for in Abram. Let me say this. We've been waiting for him because it will be through Abraham and his offspring that all the world will receive blessing. Abram and his offspring is the solution for the world's problem, and that is why we have all been waiting for him. And everything depends upon Abram and his offspring. And I'm not just talking about the existence of the Jews as an ethnic nation. I am talking about the redemption of the world and the solution to a universal problem that is recounted for us in Genesis 1 through 11. Everything depends upon Abram and him having offspring. Look with me to Genesis eleven twenty nine. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Skip down to verse 30. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Not Abram and Sarai tried a few times to get pregnant and they weren't able. She was labeled as barren. She was incapable of having children, which for a woman in that society would, meant that she was good for not much. And the rest of the Abraham narrative will be focused on how this offspring of Abraham will come about. And we know how that happens. We are on the other side of this story, and so we know how that happens. Abraham and Sarai, or Sarah, are able to conceive miraculously, and they have Isaac, their own offspring, the offspring of promise. And from Isaac will come Jacob, and from Jacob will come the 12 sons of Israel. From them, the nation of Israel is formed, but even out of them, that we are told that it will be from the tribe of Judah that the promised seed would come. The one through whom all blessing to the world would come will be from the line of Judah. And then from the line of Judah, we are particularly told that the promised one, the Messiah, will come from the line of King David. And you know this, and I know this, that we know that to be Jesus of Nazareth, Christ the Lord, who, by the way, was also conceived under seemingly impossible circumstances. God is able to shine the brightness in, of his promise into the darkness of pagan idolatry. And God is also able to work his plan of redemption in the face of impossible obstacles. He did it once at the beginning of the Abraham story. He does it over and over and over again in the history of the people of Israel. And he has done it climactically through the coming, dying, and rising of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. He continues to do it. He continues to do it for us. He continues to do it amongst us. And he continues to do it through us. Because as Paul tells us, my Gentile brothers and sisters, that we are the seed of Abraham. Friends, perhaps you are plagued by thoughts and temptations from your former life. Or perhaps you're overwhelmed by the hostility of the world towards Christianity. Or you're, you're just wondering, how in the world does the kingdom of God advance in a cultural climate such as ours? Well, friends, take heart. 
God is able to shine brightness into darkness, and he's able to work in seemingly impossible situations. And God has pledged himself to us by covenant and has promised to bless us. He has promised to bless us through the offspring of Abraham. And our job is simple. I didn't say it was easy, but it is simple. Our job is to take hold of the promises of God and to hang on for dear life, even as Abram did. Let me close with this. You know, one, one of the saddest parts of this pandemic, and I kind of say this tongue-in-cheek, but is that, that I cannot make my way across the border to Hobby Lobby, okay? So that was some, one of the things that our family would do before... Um, you know, before the pandemic and before Noah got sick. But if you don't know what Hobby Lobby is, it's, it's basically a Christian version of Michael's, which is like sort of a crafts and supplies store. And if you don't know uh, what that is, then, then I'm, they apologize. But uh, so Hobby Lobby, okay? And at Hobby Lobby, they have these signs of Christian sayings and, Christ- and Bible verses. And you, you know what those are like, and I'm sure that you've seen them, and I'm sure that you've seen, or you might even have some in your home. But one of the most famous verses that's put up on the wall of many Christian homes is the verse from Joshua 24:15, which says, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, you know that verse, and you've heard that verse before. You might even have it in your home hung up somewhere. Um, we've heard of that verse. But few of us, I would venture to reckon, that we, we, actually, we, we don't know the context in which that verse is given. So it's a good verse, but we don't know the context. And so I just want to close this morning by providing us with the context of that verse. And when Joshua speaks those words, he's actually recounting the call of Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans to the promised land. Joshua is, is in a sense, referencing this text that we've gone through this morning. And, and, you know, it's significant because Joshua is not merely saying that, hey, Abraham moved geographical location, right? Joshua is saying that God, in a radical way, called Abram to himself so that Abram could now worship the one true and living God. Let me conclude with the words of Joshua. This is Joshua 24. If you're wondering, it says this. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the river Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Now therefore... Fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve Yahweh, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Maple Avenue Baptist Church, let us serve Yahweh. Let us serve the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who called us out of darkness and who saved us out of seemingly impossible situations so that our hearts could be given to him and so that our hearts could cling to his promises and so that we might enjoy sweet communion and fellowship with him now and forevermore.
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that we have together. What a, what a rich text. Thank you for giving us texts that are not intuitive to us. Thank you for giving us texts that are hard for us to understand. But thank you that you are a faithful God and that you are working in history. And thank you that you are a powerful God to overcome darkness and overcome the impossible. Help us to look to you. Help us to trust you. Help us to love you more than anything else. Help us to love you above the gods of the nations. Help us to love you more than anything else and forgive us for when we stray. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.